Hi, I'm Dora from Dora Nicolau and my drink of choice is a chai. I'm Gemma from Contently Driven and my drink of choice is red wine. And I'm Michaela from Inspired Office and my drink of choice is a sparkling white wine. Work-life wine time supports the responsible consumption of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Work-Wife Wine Time podcast the podcast for Australian women in business who are looking for connection and the support of other women who are sharing the same business journey. You've got Makala here with you today, and I'm so excited to connect you with my special guest, Beck Hughes. So, Beck, thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about this topic. And we were just saying, how long have we known each other? It's been a long time. It's been quite a long a while. time. Yes. It's it, and it's I was saying earlier too, like I haven't Beck and I have emailed a little bit kind of on random things, and, but this is the first time we've actually spoken face to face in many years. So it's very exciting. We got a little bit excited <laughs> at the start. It's like, okay, we need to record this episode now. Yeah. Time to calm <laughs> down. <laughs> um, so Beck, you are a coach and mentor for people with creative businesses. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what it is that you do exactly? Why do I do that? Well, look, so my background is as a designer myself, so brand designer, and I've worked for, oh, like a horrible number of years, like 20 plus years in the creative industry as a brand designer and brand strategist. So that was my thing. And then... 10 years ago, I had started to have my kids and then I started my own business. And that business focused very much on brand creation for one-to-one clients, particularly in service industries. Yeah. And so as that evolved, what I found was I started to build connections more and more with other creatives as well. I think creatives, like anyone in any industry, they look to make connections with their peers too. And so as I've gone on, and particularly in the last two years, I've just found that One thing I love doing is sharing my, I suppose, my business journey, but also my creative journey and how I've evolved my creative skills, particularly my brand skills, and sharing that with other creatives. So now I've got sort of, I suppose, a dual business, which is I still work with clients one-on-one in brand creation, Mm -hmm. but I also work with and mentor other creatives who are going out into business and want to marry their creative skills with their business skills. And as I say, not completely lose their creative mojo to yeah. the man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because, you know, we would, I um, our previous podcast co-host Rowena was a graphic designer and she actually talked about that a lot. She struggled in corporate. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting one because there is so much to be gained for creatives going out on their own. There's a huge amount in terms of creative control and getting to choose the clients that you work with. But that's also comes with its own challenges. You know, when you work in an agency, you don't have to go out and look for work. Mm. You have that community and that guidance. You don't feel as lonely in your creativity because creativity is a very much a collaborative process. So coming out of an agency environment in particular, where there are challenges to be creative on tap nine to nine to five creativity as I call it so there are there's so much to be gained but it just doesn't happen overnight and maybe a lot of creatives don't instinctively have all the other tools around 
time management and business management and the mm. money and managing clients and managing client relationships. So it's really supporting them to have those. So their creativity doesn't suffer as a result of getting sucked into all of the other doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So have you always worked in this space or did you have a life before the creative field? Like did you study it at uni and tell us, how did it all start? I haven't got a life now, so I probably didn't have a life before. Carla. Um, I have always been a creative, but funny enough, actually, I do say that. However, my first, well, let's say qualification outside of in the UK. So I'm from the UK. That might be obvious. So in the UK, you do something called Mm A-levels, which is probably the equivalent of a HSC. And then from them, the first thing I did was an English degree, which sounds very weird to me now to think that I did three years reading books and writing essays about books but I think that stood me very very well for then going into brand strategy in particular Mm -hmm. so being a close reader looking for themes looking for trends in things is a really big part of brand strategy like looking for patterns and that's a big part of English lit or literature in particular is kind of close reading and reading things in a particular way. So I did that. And then I went into an agency. And then at the same time, I was studying graphic design. So I kind of went straight from English going, huh, what's this? Why did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) And went on to study graphic design. So then I worked as in a studio. I was a junior designer. The joys of being a junior designer are none. (laughs) 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 Because you you get really good at using spray mount which is the stuff that you put, you spray on the back of pieces of paper to mount them to boards for presenting back in the day when we presented everything like physically instead of bringing a laptop. So, you know, you're a junior designer, you're kind of doing a lot of the uh, picking stuff around, the menial stuff. But that was my start and I started in a packaging agency. But then it was only really a few years into that that I was taken under the wing of a brand strategist in quite a a big agency mm-hmm. and I just was fascinated by it and developed a real interest in that so I kind of shifted my career quite early on and focused much more on the strategy side of things so I wasn't doing a lot of design work and so when I moved to Australia that's what I was doing I was working in brand strategy and it was only then when I had my kids that my design kind of skills came back to the fore because everyone's like, oh, can you design us a logo? Can you do? Yeah, of course, because I, you know, I just wanted to do some stuff while I was also mumming. Yeah. And so I kind of lent back into the design. So then in my own business, those two things came together really well for me. So working, being a designer and being a creative and doing the output work, the, the, you know, the doing work, but marrying that up with brand strategy and being able to give those two combined skills to small business owners was really powerful because very often, you know, big agency brand strategy isn't available to smaller business owners. So that's mm, very rewarding that's to be able to true. offer that kind of thinking. Yeah. And so what what was it that prompted you to start to go out on your own and start your own business? I suppose it happened. It's it's so interesting to me when I hear people go, oh, I started my business on X day. I made the decision and that, you know, they celebrate their like anniversary of how old their business is. Yep. And I didn't really have that moment. It sort of evolved really for me. 
So it came a little bit out of necessity because I had my two kids less than a year apart. Oh, wow. Yeah. So quite quickly, my son was only three months old when I realized I was pregnant again. So quite quickly, I realized that I probably wasn't going to be going back to work anytime soon. But also, I didn't want to go back to work. I mm. always thought I was going to be a career person. I always thought I was going to want to get back to work. But as once I had him, my first, I was like, I can't see myself being back in an agency. And you mentioned Rowena, and she would understand this. Agency life, as bad as it is, and it's something that the industry needs to work on a lot because there are so many female designers who are in their own business. They're not in agencies because it just doesn't go with being a mum. The two things mm. don't work. You know, agency life is long hours. It's being at the pub. It's, you know, just being available to have chats, be fun. And it doesn't fit with leaving at 4.30, 5 o'clock every day. Mm. So I suppose I knew I wouldn't go back to studio and I just wanted to do, be doing something. So that's how it started. I was just doing little bits of freelance for people I knew. And then it just really evolved. It evolved from there. And then it was somewhat out of necessity because I didn't want to go back to work. I wanted to stay doing my own thing. So mm. it was kind of a bit of a, you know, it just grew over time. Yeah, that's a really cool story. So, Beck, I've asked you on the podcast today because you recently wrote a really excellent piece in your newsletter um, which I'm subscribed to about spec savers and how they were shifting into the hearing aid space. Um, and after reading the article, I reached out and asked if I could share it in my small business startup community because I just, it was just so good and thought provoking. And like, as a startup coach, you know, that I do in my day job, I need to be having these conversations but I'm not really well equipped to have it. And your article was just brilliant. It's like, it was so succinct and it just really covered the things that people need to think about. Um, and anyway, long story short. So I decided to invite you on the podcast so we could have a more in-depth conversation about how to be less short-sighted, which is a pun that I stole from your article, um, and name your brand for the long game. So I suppose, can we start with, like, can you tell us why naming is so challenging for business owners? Because I know that when I named my current business, oh my gosh, I went through like definite, like eight, yes, that's definitely the one which then fell by the wayside before I finally landed on my business name. And it was like a long and painful process for me, <laughs> probably for others too, I'm sure. Look, Absolutely. Like naming is the thing that of all the things in brand interests me the most. I could have so many conversations about brand naming. And one of the main reasons is because of exactly that. It is so challenging for people. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't have to be because there will always be, it will always feel a little bit challenging, but it doesn't need to be as challenging as it feels. And if you don't believe me about how challenging people feel it is, you've only got to look at any business Facebook group to see <laughs> how many posts there are about, oh, I can't think of a name. Please help me think of a name. Or I've come up with these names. What do you think? And generally they're all really bad. But anyway, yeah. that's a separate <laughs> issue. Yes. 
think it's the brand... I'm familiar with what you are describing. Very familiar. It, it, I'm going to make a confession here right on this podcast and say I very rarely get into those conversations because naming isn't something you can just do on the back of a beer mat. Mm. It's not something you should do out of context. You know, when people jump into a Facebook group and say, oh, you know, I need some ideas. There's so much context to that that is going to make or break that name. But just starting to throw in naming ideas, it's not helpful. Mm. But number two, coming from it as as a strategist who part of my job is to do naming, it's also hugely valuable. And I just think no one should give away that IP for free. If you come up with a great name and you just flick that to someone in a Facebook group, that asset is worth so much to them in the long run. No one should be giving away that IP just thoughtlessly. Mm-hmm. So I there are not thought of that. It's just crazy, you know, to just like an amazing name or, a, you know, even a good name is worth to a big company worth hundreds of thousands. You know, when people, when big companies sell their business, they're selling a name, literally. Mm. I mean, they're selling lots of other things, but part of it is they are physically selling a name. Yes. And that in itself has value. There's a lot of value tied up in a name. So that's the first thing I would say about naming. That's why it's hard. But the reasons why it's hard, I think are there are a couple of things. Number one, it can become so subjective. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got an opinion about yeah a good or a bad name so it can get very fraught because if you take the objectivity out of a naming process it's doomed to fail so that's the first thing but I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more I think the other big problem with naming is we invest so much in this poor little one or two or maybe three words or letters if you make the mistake of using an acronym so we put so much weight and so much expectation onto this one thing that is part of a much bigger picture so we agonize oh this name has got to do all these things it's got to say all these things about me and it's got to instantly let someone know exactly what I do (laughs) and you know it's like it, it will never a name I'm here to tell you a name cannot do all the things and that's okay as well it's okay that it doesn't do all the things because like with any element of brand, whether that be your color palette, your logo, the fonts you choose, the way you're copywriting, your tone of voice, individually, they can only serve a couple, they can only do a couple of jobs. It's how they come together collectively where they become powerful. Mm. So that's where people fall over is they put so much weight of expectation on this poor little name and it, it can only do so much. So, Beck, can you just list again what you mentioned there? So what I suppose coming back to basics, really, what is a brand? Like what you've kind of just explained it then, but can you just break it down again? What makes up a brand? Oh, mate, this is a good (laughs) one. Have we got time? (laughs) Look, number one, there is a difference between a brand and branding. So what I've just talked about really is branding and branding is like the physical manifestation of your brand. So it's the logo, it's your color palette, it's your name, it's the stuff that people see in a physical sense, the fonts that you choose. So your branding is how you bring to life, how you manifest if you like your brand. 
Brand, on the other hand, mm-hmm. sorry. No, keep going. Okay. I was just saying, tell me more. I know. There is more. There's so much more. I'm, I'm kind of like <laughs> frantically thinking how I keep this simple. Um, whereas brand, on the other, other hand, is, I suppose, more the emotional manifestation. So when you start to think about brand, it is how you create a connection with your audience. And you don't, can, you don't just create a connection through a logo. You create a connection through a logo or a color palette that does a particular job. Mm-hmm. And that particular job is to speak to the emotional needs of your audience or the emotional drivers, if you like, or motivators of your audience. So that's the job of brand is to work out the internal workings of your brand to understand how you're going to create that emotional connection. So things like how you can position your brand. So positioning is about, well, do I want to be the fun larrikin? Do I want to be the really emotive, premium, aspirational brand? Do I want to be the thinking brand and the leader and an authority? So you know, you, you make those kinds of decisions with your brand mm-hmm. and then you go, right, so now I need a name and a color palette and a font choice that will reflect those things. Mm-hmm. So the brand, the brand needs to come first, then the branding. Correct. And that's where, again, why naming becomes a struggle. Because if you don't work out the brand, mm-hmm. if you don't do the brand strategy bit and work out what you want to say with this brand, what the job of this brand is going to be, how it's going to create a connection with the audience who that audience even is in the first place. If you just go day one, I want to start a business. Day two, where's my blank sheet of paper? Let's come up with some names. Mm. That's why it's hard because you don't know what job that name is trying to do. What is it? What do you want to say with that name? There's, There's no parameters. It could be anything. So I always say if I were to define brand, what I say about brand, it's the extent to which people believe that you can help them project the self-image they want to create. Because ultimately, human beings, sorry, everyone, don't throw rotten tomatoes at me, but it's true. (laughs) Human beings are ultimately, like they're motivated by a number of things, but one of the big motivations is ego. Mm. People care about how they are seen in the world. And the majority of brand choices are driven by that ego. And I don't mean ego in the sense of I'm the big I am. It's it's things like I want to be seen as a good mom. Mm. I want to be seen as a responsible citizen. I want to be, and it doesn't mean to say that you that those things aren't also important to you as a human being. It doesn't mean it's just skin deep, that's how I want to be seen. The two are linked. It's kind of what's important to you, but what's important to you is also the image you want to project into the world. Mm -hmm. So a brand strategy needs to tap into that self-image that your audience wants to project. When you understand what people want to say about themselves to other people, that's what the brand needs to talk to. Mm -hmm. And then the branding comes after that. If you don't understand that ego driver, that's what it all boils down to, then you can't create a meaningful brand because you're not connecting with people at the level they actually are motivated in. I hope that makes That's sense. That's awesome. I've just taken a whole page of notes on that. That was brilliant. That 
of course of course being you you've just put that all so beautifully succinctly <laughs> it's like I've had conversations about this in the past and I've kind of sort of understood it but now it's like ah oh, right that that's that's brilliant I'm so glad I asked that question thank you for answering that one for me and you did it really succinctly well done. there you go that's the do you know what that is the job of a brand that, that's what I've learned in my time as a strategist is my job is to make the complex simple and that is like the hardest thing in the world to do mm. but it's what I'm constantly I challenge myself every day simplify 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 and yep. it's something you've got to consciously do and that's the other thing when people with naming and with brand and with branding is they get overwhelmed because they forget to just keep it simple. Mm. What What is the ego driver for people? How am I going to talk to that? What is the best physical manifest, manifestation of that in terms of look and feel? Yeah. Brand done. <laughs> that sounds so simple. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, Beck, tell us, so you've kind of touched on this a bit, but tell us a bit more about, the attributes of a good name. Okay. So I think what we touched on it with spec savers. Yeah. It, or the, we, you and I know this, but nobody else has read the article, so we should probably expand on that. More about the art, about your fabulous <laughs> article, and I highly recommend heading to Beck's website and reading the blog post because it is so well written. She writes so beautifully. It's hilarious and incredibly informative all in, at once. Oh, thanks, Makala. Well, look, look. I think the first thing for well, we'll come back from spec savers, and we'll we'll kind of touch on that in a sec. Because for me, brand, there are a couple of, or there perhaps there are two sides of a brand name. There are what you would call hygiene factors. So there are some boxes that a brand name I think should tick in terms of practicalities, if you like. Mm -hmm. And then there's more that emotional side of what a brand name should look to do. So in terms of hygiene factors, I suppose the first thing is, is that you'd want it to be ownable. And this is a big thing. And I think this is one of the big challenges now with naming is, you know, let's say we we're trying to name a brand 50 years ago. The options would be endless mm. because there weren't as many businesses. There weren't as many ideas out in the world. So we have, you know, started to have you ever I'm sure you've had the experience you think of a brand name you google it and 60 other people are already already using it I had that exact thing happen to me this morning I'm trying to come up with a name for a, a consultancy partnership that I'm looking at doing and yeah it was like oh this is brilliant I thought of it overnight this morning I google it and it's like damn it I know because the other however many billion t people in the world are also having ideas too yes. so Ownability is the challenge of naming, but it's also probably one of the most important things in naming is creating something that you can own. And what ultimately I mean by that is it's protectable. Mm -hmm. So no one else is necessarily using it, particularly, you know, we can get into like the trademarking stuff, but ownability is also contextual. You might come up with a brilliant name for your consulting business and someone might be using it for kids' clothes. That's okay. Yep. If someone else is using it in the consulting space and you've got a problem, you've got a probably a differentiation problem, but you've also got like a legal problem potentially as well in terms of trademarking. Yeah. Again, it comes down to you know, like other things, context as well. Like if they're in Alaska using that name just in their local village, 
and you're over in Australia, it's probably less of a problem. If it's a global company that will have trademarked it in multiple territories, then you're probably better off staying away from it. Mm. So ownability and protectability is important in naming. It's a challenge. It's a pain in the bum, but it's something that you really have to be mindful of. The other thing is memorability, being mem- having a name that's memorable. Like the number of names that I come across where it's so similar to so many other names in, in their industry that it just, it's so forgettable. Like, so I live in an area and there's so many Bayside renovations, Bayside kitchens, Bayside carpentry, kitchens on the Bayside. Like that's, it's memorable as a category name, but I won't remember the individual business name. Yeah because it's just all so vanilla. So something that's memorable, I think, is a really important criteria. The other thing is then we start to get into that more emotive side, which is being a bit more aspirational, being a bit emotive. And that really comes back to understanding what is the driver for your audience. Because when you understand the ego play, you can then talk to them in an emotive way because you start to understand what it is they want. What is the transformation or the pivot that they're looking for? What is going to fulfill them? And you can start to think about ways of talking to that with a name. And when you find something that's emotive or aspirational, chances are it will also then be more memorable and Mm. have more cut through just purely by definition, because you're not just using a series of words. Yeah. And then another big one, I think, coming back to maybe more of a hygiene factor is that it's it's usable and it's accessible. So if you come up with something that no one can spell unless they speak a remote version of Sanskrit, <laughs> it's not really helping. <laughs> you know, I see that a lot of people come up with these really esoteric names and they go and look at these old, you know, it, ancient languages or come up with these things and it's a great idea conceptually I get it but unless someone can say it and spell it we're going to have a problem because we Mm. need to be able to be googled we need to be so being accessible being something people can say so I don't know if you're familiar with the clothing brand I don't even I'll spell it A-J-E that's the clothing brand so I think it's okay pronounced Aya but some people say Arj some people say Aja like there's so many different ways of selling saying it and it's only since threads we've got like threads we won't even get onto threads but it's only since threads has come about that the actual brand themselves it's a big clothing brand went onto threads and went if anyone's wondering how to pronounce our name this is how you do it so (laughs) (laughs) and you still can't remember exactly so (laughs) You know, just to an extent, obviously you can have some fun with actually educating your audience around that as well, or it can become part of your brand personality that, you know, how to say your name. But ideally as a small business, don't make it hard. Don't Mm. make it hard for people. And then the other thing is the spec savers thing, which is scalability. Mm. So what, what the issue with spec savers was, you know, spec savers have been around for several decades you know they started in the UK they're now in most territories in the world and they were two optometrists that started this business and they were going to do spectacles and they were going to do spectacles that were affordable for people because all the private optometrists were charging a bomb back in the 80s or the 90s whenever it was so 
what do we call it? We're going to call it spec savers, spectacles that you save money with. Great idea. Says what it does on the tin. Until fast forward 15 years and or whatever, and they suddenly go, oh, we're going to do hearing aids. And you're like, well, what's hearing aids got to do with spectacles? So mm. suddenly you find yourself, you've gone with this really literal name that put you in a box and it wasn't scalable. So now you've got a little bit of a education problem with your audience. You've got to try and explain to them why you're suddenly doing hearing aids, not just spectacles that you've added this. And whilst it's it's over, you can overcome it. But if you start from the beginning when you're naming, thinking about, well, how are we going to be more scalable here? How are we going to give ourselves the scope to do new things and to pivot and to add new product lines? Then you avoid that problem in the first place. So just by going really, really pinpoint with your naming in a very literal sense and going, we're going to just name ourselves after our product. We're going to name ourselves after our service. You immediately limit your, how far you can go with the brand, how extendable you can be. Mm. And And the key way to get past that is to not name based on what you do, as in these are my products, these are my services, but to go back to that aspiration and that more emotive side of naming, which is to think about what do I do for my audience? Mm. So when you start to think about the outcomes you create, the level that goes above and beyond just your products and you name around that, then immediately you're focusing on a more scalable mission, your, your brand mission or your vision is, is that bigger picture thing and you're naming to that. Yeah. Because as you evolve, you might do other things that deliver on that mission and that vision. And your name is still going to carry you through. Virgin is a very good example of this, to give an example. Yes. So Virgin as a name is all about the mission and vision of that business. Because for Richard Branson, that was all about being a challenger brand. So going into industries where they were brand new, but where there was an old guard where things had always been done a certain way, take finance, take the music industry, all of the industries that Virgin have gone into. And so that brand was about a behavior and an attitude to any industry they went into. It was about being a newbie, challenging, doing things differently, being a bit green in a way, but using that greenness to their advantage. So the name Virgin has given them permission to go into any industry, because they go in with an attitude and with so they're kind of focusing on their mission and their an emotional side of what the brand does they didn't just go you know I think Virgin actually started in um, music that was their first thing so they weren't just you know new records Branson records or whatever it was they what they did was create a more visionary name that gave them that scalability Mm. Yeah, that's a really good example. I remember reading both of his books going, he's done so many different things with the Virgin brand. Like even these things that I never, I had no idea that he'd gone into. But, yeah, he'd he'd just used, it was Virgin Music, Virgin, you know, Airlines, just Virgin, whatever it was that he did. That's so true. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. I never really thought about the, the um <clears throat> The emotive stuff behind it, like you've just mentioned, that's really awesome. Yeah, and it's a really good example of of having that scalability because he had 
as long as he stuck to his guns in terms of his attitude mm. and his what he wanted to do with the brand, he kind of had permission to go into any industry. Mm. He didn't have to explain himself. Or, you know, why, as a record producer, are you now in trains? He, d- he didn't have to because he's like, well, we're just following our brand mission. Yeah. Whereas, like, why is Specsavers? Why is a spectacle com- company? Why is an optometrist now doing hearing aids? It does make sense when you boil it down. But mm. they've sort of bracketed themselves a little bit with some short-sighted naming. Yeah. Short-sighted naming. There you go. Short-sighted naming. <laughs> <laughs> well, this kind of leads really well into my next question. So what are some of the common naming pitfalls? But before you launch into that, I want to come back to something you said earlier and I wrote down. Um, you said that people make the mistake of using an acronym. That's my first pitfall. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Tell me more. Acronyms. I hate them. They should be banned. Because <laughs> um, acronyms commit most of the naming crimes, which is they're incredibly unownable because a series of letters mashed together just is never very ownable. Mm-hmm. They're supremely unmemorable. Have you ever tried? Like, I, we're currently working with a kitchen like cabinet maker, and he's a, like a series of three letters. And that I have used those letters in every different combination. Every time I've tried to look up an email <laughs> from him, I just can't remember it because it just isn't something memorable. It isn't something I can visualize. It's just a series of letters. And then also a series of letters has no emotional meaning. Mm. You can't imbue emotion into a series of letters unless you're BP. And BP were kind of clever because they turned BP, which was British Petroleum, into, I think it's British Petroleum, don't quote me on that. I think that's what it is. Correct. But they then kind of evolved that over more recently into Beyond Petroleum. So they sort of went, well, we've got this series of letters, which has no meaning. It's, it's because, I mean, a company like that obviously does become recognizable mm. by purely by optics. They're everywhere, but it still had no meaning to people. It didn't talk to anything emotive. So they started to talk about beyond petroleum, which was their future vision about becoming cleaner and greener and more sustainable, sustainable and more about renewables. So they had to go back and imbue some meaning into an old name so coming back to the pitfalls like just do me a favor don't use acronyms don't use acronyms of you know the first letter of your you know three word descriptive name that you've come up with for your business or your initials it just doesn't tick what I think are some of the really important boxes around what makes a good name Mm -hmm. horrible (laughs) (laughs) don't do it people don't, just don't, don't do it. And then, you know, with the domain name, the domain name starts to become like just three letters, does it? Or, mm. you know, I see people adding on, you know, FJY group because they have to give it another word because three letters on its own isn't enough for a domain name. Yeah, because www.abc.com, well, not ABC, obviously, but yeah, it's short and weird. Yeah. Yeah, it just, and some smart person 10 years ago went and bought every combination of three letters <laughs> in the world.com so that you'd have to go and when you suddenly decide to come up with your clever acronym name, acronym, oh, can't say it. You can't say it. <laughs> when you decide to come up with your clever acronym name, you can't buy the .com or the .com.au anyway. Mm. 
So yeah, don't do <laughs> don't do acronyms, people. What else do we not want to do? Don't be too literal. And I, that just comes back to the Specsavers example. So when you're very literal about your name, and I'll, again, another example on a smaller scale that you won't have heard of, but a previous client of mine, they were called Specialized Advice. It's mm. a descriptor, not a brand name. Mm. So again, it commits a lot of the crimes. It's not very memorable. It's not very distinctive. It's absolutely not very emotive. So being very, very literal about what you do or being very literal in the sense of you know, naming for a product, naming for a service does, again, pigeonhole you. It boxes you in in that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do the memorability thing. Very often isn't very ownable either because everybody's come up with the obvious words that are associated with your industry or category. Yeah. So you're going to find it very hard to own a name like that. So that's another pitfall. Go beyond that. Think bigger, like with the emotive stuff that we're talking about. We've touched on it as well, being difficult to say or spell. Mm-hmm. Don't need any obscure language. But also the, the flip side of that, which I quite like, is phonetic spelling, where you might take a word that might allude to something for people, but you give it a simpler spelling. Or maybe you add in just one more letter. Because Google tends to solve that sort of stuff for you. If you just miss a letter, Google might recognize what you're talking about. Yeah. So keeping it simple in terms of being able to say and spell, I think is a good one. When you get too complex or esoteric with it or too long, three, four words, again, too hard, too difficult Mm. to remember, too impossible to fit that email address on a business card Mm. (laughs) because it's just too long. Yeah. So simple is good. I think as well, keeping it safe. So very often people will go and look at everyone else in their industry. And whilst they don't want to be the same as, they, they say that, oh, I don't want to be the same as, but can I just be like slightly different too? So it's comfortable. <laughs> so they kind of stay a little bit in a comfort zone of, well, what's acceptable in my industry? Oh, I don't want to be too out there. Don't want to be too showy. Don't want to come up with too, something too different. You know, for example, if you take accountants and lawyers, mm. well, everybody's using like their surname. So we'll stick with that. We'll do that because mm. that's nice and safe. But it does yeah. tend to be a bit vanilla. It does tend to blend in. Yeah. So going outside of the parameters of what someone has written down as the rules for your industry can kick up some very interesting things in terms of naming. And then the last one for me, a pitfall, which is really important. I've experienced this a lot working with government agencies is cultural appropriation. Drives me nuts. So going, oh, we want to seem really inclusive and really, you know, open-minded to other in you know other communities and minorities so naming based on that it's kind of virtue signaling in a lot of ways Mm. so the one thing that really bugs me in australia is using aboriginal names for example Mm. when that's not your background that's not your culture you don't have the right to own that so it's not the it's not the fact that the name has meaning and has you know, it's a beautiful name, but taking it and not having any claim on that culture yourself and doing it for the wrong reasons, which is to go, oh, I'm really inclusive. 
don't love it. Don't mm. love it at all. If that's different to, say, for example, using, you know, Aboriginal names for places and, you know, doing that in, that's important in terms of being inclusive. But using it for your business name when you don't have any claim on that, it's a no-no from me. Yeah. You know, I find it particular, particularly in government agencies, can I say, sorry to anyone, sorry, not sorry to anyone in that does this, <laughs> but wanting to name buildings and name new services around those kind of cultural names, I think is, it's well-meaning, but it's misplaced. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. So, Beck, yeah. tell me what you think about people, and I say this, you know, knowing your business name, what do you think about people using their own names? Because, like, for me, that's something that is, like, a dream I could never do because Macala Grossi, no one can ever spell it, no one can ever pronounce it. Like, it's something that I've always wished I could do but will never be able to. How is that, like, as far as a good strategy? Okay. So... Not my name, obviously, but someone, <laughs> like, someone with a name, an awesome name, say, like, Beck Hughes. Personal decision. For me, I have been through multiple iterations of my business. I've been mm -hmm. called a number of things in my business and in life. <laughs> um, but my business started off as... My first business name was BDI Creative because I thought I was being really clever about, because my surname was actually Davis at the time. Hughes is my married name. So I was like doing BD, you know, using my using my initials. There you go, I committed the crime, but I turned it into something interesting, which was about attention to detail and stuff, right? <laughs> BDI Creative. Then I became nimble design because oh. I wanted to be all about being responsive and you know, doing quick turnaround design. That was when I had the kids and I was like, in and out, in and out. That's how I wanted to be. <laughs> and then I became white space because I was that that was the point in my business quite early on where I was like, no, actually, my wheelhouse is brand strategy and that's where I want to be. And I want to be helping people find the white space in their industry, find their gap, find their opportunity. So I was that for a very long time. And then I suppose for me, it was a personal thing of realising People never said, oh, go and look up white space, go and work with white space, <laughs> because I didn't become an agency. It was always just me. Mm. People would always be like, oh, go and speak to Beck Hughes. Mm. So I realized that I was my brand in spite of myself. Mm -hmm. So because I, I was just the person, you know, it was a me brand. So I eventually lent into that. So I think it's a really personal thing. But I think what's really important here is to separate personal brand creation a personal brand and person branding so a person brand is a brand identity that just uses a name mm -hmm. so Beck Hughes branding that's a person brand that's just me using my name yeah but within that I also have to create my personal brand which is me as an individual as a human behind it so there are plenty of people who go right we're going to be Deloitte I'm assuming Deloitte Mr Deloitte was probably a person at one point and he just used his name and then you can exist within that just as your business name mm -hmm. but then 
that doesn't replace the fact of having a personal brand, which is all about you as the human behind your brand. And you can still do that regardless of what you call your business. So if I was still white space, doesn't mean to say that then I can't be Becky behind or Beck behind white space. I can still create my personal brand. But on the flip side of that, just calling my business Beck Hughes branding doesn't suddenly create this really personal, connectable human brand. Mm. I've still got to then do the work behind it to, to be the face of it. Yeah. And make the decision to kind of, you know, be the visual of my brand, if you like. So I think using a name, you just have to be clear on why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Are you doing it because you want to create a business that is a very strong personal brand to you? You know, some would argue that it's limiting because, well, what if you want to go on and sell the business? Of what if you expand and people won't always work with you? I, I just don't agree with that. I think there's plenty of examples of brands that have used a surname that have gone on to be huge and it's never become an issue. So I think it's a great option. I think as long as you instill that brand with lots of meaning around still what it means, you know, what's the meaning behind the brand? It's, it can't just be a person's name yeah. and not have any more meaning, not have a mission, not have that vision, not talk to those emotional values. As long as you do that as well, I think it's a great option. Mm. But also I don't think, you know, on the flip side of that, there's people saying, well, you're a sole trader. You should just be trading under your name. Why? I think individuals can trade under any brand name they choose. Mm. But what is powerful is then to create the personal brand behind it, be the person behind it. Yeah. So for Makala, you might be awesome coaching. <laughs> I don't think there's any IP in that, so I'm not worried. Yeah, okay. But let's I just say that one. <laughs> you're awesome coaching. You can be that and it can just be Makala behind it. But I think what's important is then that you are visible and you are the person behind it and people know you and people can see how your values come to life mm-hmm. within that brand and they can sit alongside each other doesn't mean to say you've got to be Makala Grossi coaching yeah does that make sense did I answer that question you did answer <laughs> that question you did a fabulous job of answering <laughs> that question <laughs> so short short answer is use a personal name absolutely but understand why you're doing it and understand there's more to creating a personal brand than just putting your name on the door yeah I think that's the biggest yeah. the biggest lesson that I took from what you just said then it's yeah. like it's not just putting your name on the door it's there's still a lot of work to be done yeah yeah so Beck, where can people find some naming inspiration what are some think- good brainstorming techniques or what where's a good starting place for people who have decided to start a new business and the name is the next thing on the list (laughs) um look I think the most important thing is actually don't sit down with a blank sheet of paper and start churning out names take a step back and actually start by getting clear on what is my brand about Mm -hmm. what is the transformation I create for my audience who are my audience What are the emotional drivers for them? What motivates them? What is the ego play? Start to get clear on some of those things. What is the positioning I want to have? Like we said in the beginning, am I going to be the fun, quirky, jovial one? Am I going to be the really elevated, 
sophisticated one? You know, how do I want people to perceive me in my brand? So I think you've got to, that's where you start. You don't start with naming. Start to, there's no cost in having you think about who, how you're going to present your brand to the world. And I don't mm. mean present your brand in terms of, oh, it's going to be blue and yellow. I mean, how emotionally you're going to present it. Start yeah. there. Step two is then to go, right, okay, I'm going to need some criteria. How am I going to know if this is a good name or not? Because that takes out some of the subjectivity, which was right at the beginning of this chat. We said one of the big problems with naming is it becomes so subjective. I don't know if it's good or not. How am mm. I going to know? So you need some criteria by which to judge it. And actually, just to kind of tell a little story to illustrate this point, is I was watching a show on I think it was location 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 recently and it's where they some you know the the show hosts go and take people around to see houses because they're looking to buy houses in a particular area and this particular couple they were shown four houses and then they came back and they gave each house their score and they'd scored it against their criteria mm -hmm. so is it a good location is it a house that we can you know, build our family in? Can we put a pool in the backyard? They'd come up with all their criteria and then they gave each house a score. So instead of just going, oh, you know, emotion is part of it. Walking in and going, oh, I love this house is part of it. But it's not everything because emotion can get in the way a little bit as well. Mm. So they were like, well, let's give it a score. And then they were a little bit surprised about which one came out on top. And it's very similar with naming. Because if you just let emotional be emotion be the boss, that's when you get tied up in knots. So I don't know, is it right? Is it not right? But if you give it some criteria, right, can it can I own it? Can I protect it? Can I say it? Can people spell it? Does it have an emotional connection? Does it talk to my vision and mission as a brand? Does it reflect my positioning? Is it something that's scalable that can allow me to do bigger things in my brand in the future? Would I be able to sell this brand, for example? Hmm. I'm not saying they're all the criteria you must have. You need to set the criteria based on what's important to you. Yeah. But set the criteria because then you can judge your names based on that. So before you even start coming up with name ideas, do those two things. Clarify your brand, set the criteria. And then you can start having fun with it. And there are some... I suppose some tools and some tricks. And the biggest one for me is just a word cloud. Start throwing down all of the words that you think of when, you know, if you think about your positioning, what are the words that come up? When you think about the transformation and the impact you have on your audience, what are all the words that come up? When you think about their ego driver, what are all the words that might come up? When you think about your audience, what's the kind of language that they use? in relation to this service. So just start brain dumping words. Mm -hmm. But then beyond words, some really interesting ways to start thinking about naming is also images. So for example, there you might think of animals or places or colors, like visual imagery that reflects the values and the things you want to say. So if you want to, if your business is all about being nimble, then you might think of a cheetah or, you know, they might, what are some of the visual cues that say what you want to say about your brand? Or colour. So there's there's a mobile phone company in the UK called Orange. Mm -hmm. and, and everyone's like, Orange? Why have you, what's that got to do with mobile phones? But actually, 
what they're about is being really about the future and being really positive and being innovative. So if you think about those kind of values, the color orange says a lot of that. Mm. It's about the horizon and about the future and about positivity. So it's word association in terms of visuals that you might use. And then obviously there are associations. So you might think, you know, some people start to dive into mythology. So, you know, I want to talk about particular values. So if you want to be all about strength and power, they start to talk about Zeus or, you know, they start to kind of draw other kind of associations from other parts of culture or other parts, stories, characters in stories, for example. You know, they might talk to, so there's one that struck me the other day was the brand Tiger Lily. So Tiger Lily is a, you know, swimwear brand, but Tiger Lily is a character in Peter Pan. She's a strong female character. So they've, I imagine, I hope, I would like to think that they've kind of named their brand because that character in that book reflects what they want to say about their brand, which is Mm. a strong, you know, forward thinking, independent female character. So there are lots of ways into naming that isn't just about the words. No, they really are. That's like, that's so helpful. There's so much to think about right there. I could very easily go and fill out my next couple of hours. (laughs) Name brainstorming. But the other thing, if I can just share, because I think it does help as well when it comes to naming, is then to also start to overlay that with different types of names. Because there are essentially some categories of names and you might say well some categories work for me and some don't so you can start to exclude Mm -hmm. so different types of names would be first and foremost we've talked about it so there's that emotional kind of aspirational thing Mm -hmm. so you might name around that so for example an example of that would be sun god are you familiar with the sunglasses brand sun god So that talks to, that's very emotive, right? That talks to, you know, who they want to be as a person. It's about image. I'm kind of a sun worshiper. That's who I am. So it talks a bit to that self-identity that people want to have about in the sunglasses. So there's that kind of a category, which is very much about emotion. Then there's the mission, that kind of virgin kind of territory. You're choosing a name based on your mission and your vision. There's personality driven names. So if you might choose a name that, that reflects, so for example, Dodo, mm-hmm. Dodo, the, you know, the internet brand, you know, there's a personality in that. It's a bit fun. It's a bit quirky. <laughs> it's also extinct. So I don't know where they were going with that, but <laughs> you, hear the, you hear the word Dodo. And of course, like we said in the beginning, there are lots of levers of brand, there's brand colors they've chosen, but all together, it comes together to create this quirky, friendly little brand. Yeah. So there's really personality driven names invented names this is probably the future of names because we've run out of all the the oxford english dictionary words everybody's bought those (laughs) so invent made up words like google google's a made up word Mm -hmm. you you forget that now because it's become so much of our vernacular but it's a made up word so made up words that imply something so google with the two o's implies look so you can Mm -hmm. start you can make up words as long as they can be said and remembered they're not so weird that nobody can say it <laughs> you've got portmanteau words two words put together facebook so you take two words that talk to maybe some of the attributes the values of your brand and you just 
lock them together to make a new word. So Facebook is a brilliant example of that. Mm. Then there's, like we said, the founder brand, the personal brand, Deloitte, Beck Hughes, whatever it might be. There's like colloquial brands where you start to use the language of your audience. So Dunkin' Donuts is a good example of that. So you're kind of using language that people might actually say, but it's a bit colloquial. It's a bit quirky. Then there's geographical, if that's really important to you. New York Times is a good example of that, where you kind of name for where you are, or you might associate yourself with a place because that place has certain values and attributes, like New York power, you know, central powerhouse has a certain vibe to it that you might want to associate with. And then there's the descriptive. You can do it if you like spec savers, but you know, you know my thoughts on that. Yes. <laughs> so there's different categories. So you might think about all of those categories and go, what fits my brand really well is probably the personality driven, maybe the invented and maybe the colloquial. Those are the three categories that I think work for my brand. So then when you've come up with all those words and those visual associations, you might start to go, okay, so if I use those kind of styles of name, what, what comes out of that? If I was mm-hmm. coming up with something colloquial or if I was coming up with something made up, how could I adapt one of these words or how could I put two of these words together? So you start to think about how those categories might inform the style of name you come up with. You're thinking so hard. <laughs> so much to think about (laughs) the thing is with naming I do like to say it is a bit of a science yeah it really I totally understand that from what you've said but it's great having some um some process around it instead of just you know pulling stuff out of the air that's 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 absolutely brilliant this has been such a good chat I hope our audience has got as much from it as I have because (laughs) I said I need a couple of hours to sit and think now. but Or we can just treat it like a personal con- consult either way. <laughs> <laughs> so, Beck, tell us where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more and engage with you? Well, so you mentioned my newsletter. That My newsletter is one of my favourite things to do, actually, because I do, as you can probably tell, <laughs> love talking about all things brand. Mm-hmm. So... I once a month because I think that we've got a lot to read and do in our lives so I put this out once a month because I also want to make it good I want to just not churn something out once a week so once a month I put out the brand brief so you can subscribe to that you can go on my website to do that which is just beckhughes.com I will spell Hughes because it's the Welsh (laughs) spelling which sometimes confuses some people, which is H-U-G-H-E-S. So it's just beckhughes.com. So there's my newsletter. You can find me on socials. I'm generally on Instagram. I am kind of poking around in threads at the moment, but doing it in a half-hearted kind of a way. But you can find me on socials at Hughes Branding, Facebook, Instagram, all of the above. Um, or like I said, on my website, you can go and have a poke around on my website. I write lots of blogs around brand issues and you might find some freebies on there too. Fantastic. And I'll have all of that information in our show notes so everyone can find you where they want to. So to wrap things up, what is the one piece of advice that you would like us all, myself and everyone listening, to keep top of mind as we think about naming a business or a new venture or something okay this is something that i haven't mentioned but i think it's worth mm-hmm. mentioning 
bonus. This is bonus, bonus point. <laughs> and that is beware creation by committee. So when it comes to asking for input, asking for feedback, just take the input you get with a pinch of salt. And the reason I say that is because I see so many people, particularly in naming, asking for ideas and asking for feedback. And there's a funny thing about feedback is when someone is asked for their opinion, by God, they will give it. <laughs> and they will really think about it. And they will think about it in a deep and meaningful way that they would never think about it if they were a consumer. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you go into the supermarket, you'll see something that you like to look at and you'll buy it. You won't spend an hour in a focus group pulling it apart. <laughs> <clears throat> and so I think the, the, <laughs> and the same goes for opinions. When people are asked for an opinion, they will probably in some ways give an overthought out opinion because they feel that's what their responsibility, their responsibility is to do. Mm. So that's the first thing is that people will overthink their response. The second thing is it will be out of context. So if you're just asking random person who is not your target audience or doesn't understand anything about what you're trying to do in your business, then it can really set you off course because they don't have the context of what you're trying to do. Mm. So it, it on that basis, we've talked about it. Subjectivity is like the killer of creativity because everybody will have a different opinion. They will overlay all of their mindset issues. Oh, don't be too risky. Oh, don't do this, don't do that. Because it will have all of their own mindset issues loaded into it. Yeah. And they, like I said, they may not even be your target audience. I don't care what your hairdressers, mother-in-laws, dogs, dog walker says. If they're not my target audience, it's irrelevant. So that's my biggest piece of advice. Trust your own instinct and beware of feedback. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute joy having you on the podcast today. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. Oh, thanks, Makala. I just have loved talking about this, as you can tell. It's one of my very (laughs) many soapbox topics. (laughs) That's awesome. Thanks so much, Beck. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you enjoyed it, hit subscribe. If you'd like to learn more, then check out our website, www.workwifewinetime.com.au. While you're there, jump on our mailing list to receive special updates and offers from our guests. Until next time, take care and drink responsibly.